0: between January and May of this year was the fastest home price appreciation in Canadian history. Mortgage borrowing for Q1 of this year was the lowest in two decades. And now we're here midway through June and we're getting May's numbers. So there was this steep, steep incline for January to May. But if new people aren't entering the market with as much gusto and with as much buying power, this is going to crescent here. And that crescent is probably going to be seen here in, in June and July. When,
1: when, when, when I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. When I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh.
0: All right, back again. Uh, I don't know, when are we going to drop this episode, actually? We're going to drop it Thursday. Yeah, sorry for the uh, missed Monday episode. Uh, bunch of crazy things. You know, Neil, you were traveling. Uh, Father's Day was in there. I had a bout of some stomach issue. Uh, so we were out of commission, but let's dive right back into it. Neil, how you doing? Good, not too bad. Yeah,
1: I'll also add to everyone already knows, but I live outside the city now. and I'm being difficult about coming into town. Uh, so I think we might do more of these where we get a mic set up in my house and, and make it happen. But big rural guy. Anyways, yeah. Big rural guy. I like it out here in the, out in the sticks. Is that a John Deere this hat you're wearing? Sticks. This is not a John Deere hat. This is an unmarked hat. Um,
0: so I actually, for the very first time you've been out there for how long? How long have you been uh, out there? Uh, six months, six months, six months. And I, I would consider us good friends. I have not yep. ever been to your house. The other day, I finally drove out there because I had showings out there, and it's literally a dirt road to your house. Yeah,
1: did you, go, did you get all the way to
0: the end? I can't believe I went. I went to the T intersection and I saw your house, and I turned right back around and drove out of there. <laughs> um, yeah, it's rough. Yeah, I mean, it's rough going there. I don't know how you drive that all, nice Audi through all, there. But um,
1: first of all, everyone makes it out that. This is like the end of the world. This is such a Nova Scotia thing where I'm I'm twenty to twenty five minutes from our office. You're downtown. You're in the heart of downtown, so I'm thirty minutes. No, man, I drive home and it'll be like nineteen minutes. If there's no traffic, it's nineteen minutes. With traffic, it's like twenty six. Um, and then this part also blows my mind is that like there are dirt roads on here because like this is a lakefront street. Every all the lakefront streets here are dirt roads, and I'm like, yeah,
0: the average road price
1: very- is probably double the province's average.
0: I also passed a literal log cabin. And I don't mean like, oh, what a beautiful um log cabin design, right, man. It's like, no, no. It's a like a unibomber log cabin on the way. <laughs> that wasn't
1: on the lake. That
0: no, was, no, not at the all. all. No, no. I'm just saying like the general setting is uh on What <laughs> cross the
1: street for that. Yeah, I know. I know. When I go running at night, it's it, it's sketchy. Um so no, but, uh, it looks
0: lovely. And there's a lot of beautiful homes there as well. But it's just like, damn, man, I finally got out there. The one across the
1: street from the log cabin that you saw, um, it's another log cabin. It's nothing crazy, but they used to film some, uh, a movie. And a I don't horror, know if it a was an horror a movie or not. Well, yeah, because it looked kind of like that, the way it's tucked in the trees, it could make a really good horror film uh, setting. But anyways. That explains like, yeah, you know, this is so, Hellback
0: Real Estate. You drive 30 minutes in any direction and you get pretty rural um, pretty quickly. Which is craziness. So, yeah, I it's I super it's cool. Freaking out
1: about affordability, but this is kind of.
0: Well, man, I'm gonna let's. Something people might
1: have to get used to.
0: Yeah, and I got some cool stuff on that today. I, I think you've got some stuff as well. But I'm gonna dive into something here, and I want to get your thoughts on. I'm gonna throw two dramatically different perspectives at you with respect to uh, the market, or or, or two insights. Because this is the challenge. This is what we're trying to balance. Uh, We being agents, uh, people concerned about the market, interested in the market, people trying to buy, people trying to sell. You get all this conflicting information. We'll try this on for size. So between January and May of this year was the fastest home price appreciation in Canadian history. Between January and May of this year. Um,
1: Based on what what data, whoa, whoa.
0: the, The... Relative ramp-up. Really? What's that? Federal, This is nationally. This is nationally. Uh, and so w- what that means is it's effectively that that's the recovery from, you know, how we had the dip in Q4 of last year. Well, the start of this year, prices yeah. have ramped up at the fastest rate in a five-year, um, uh, for, to, to start the year. that that from January to May, that's the fastest pace of price growth. Not necessarily the highest prices, but the fastest pace of growth for the first uh, five months of a year. Additionally, the period between February and May was the second fastest four-month period in history, second only to the peak COVID run-up that was June to September of 2020. So we're talking about speed of price increasing over a four-month period. This is the second fastest. So there's your there's your recovery that, that we've seen uh, in the first quarter and uh, two quarters of this year. That's not saying that prices have met What they were this time last year because they haven't quite in most areas. However, it's been a very steep recovery. So that's perspective number one, fast, like historically fast price growth. Yeah. Perspective two, mortgage borrowing for Q1 of this year was the lowest in two decades. So this is new money. This is people going out and getting mortgages or refinancing or, or borrowing in general. I shouldn't say mortgage borrowing. This is any sort of debt taking on, new debt. Taken on by Canadians in Q1 was the lowest it's been in two decades. For context, in 2022, you know, the big spending, that big run up, Q1. Well, pause
1: pause, 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 pause. You said this is the lowest uh, amount of debt taken on for this?
0: Yes. So Just
1: it's, it's like actual cash.
0: This is this is the lowest amount of, of new money people are taking on, like going into the bank and say, hey, give me more money. Give me money. Well,
1: is that defined by dollar amount or by ratios? Like
0: by dollar amount. By dollar amount. So here let, let me give you the numbers. In 2022, in Q1, there was $58 billion of new borrowing done by Canadians out there. Money was cheap. They were right. trying to get into the real estate. They were refinancing homes at low rates, all of these things. $58 billion in Q1 of 2022. In Q1 of 2023, $11.2 billion. So, this makes sense because it means Canadians aren't refinancing their homes because rates are up. It means they're 11 billion? 11.2 billion. So, from 58 billion down to 11.2 billion. Specifically, um, I think it was Equifax said that new mortgages were down 42% uh, over that period. So, obviously, no one's doing refinances Q1 of this year if they can help it, right? No one's doing refinance. Some people might be locking into fixed terms, but they're not doing new mortgages in Q1. They're also, sorry, they're not, they're not doing new products on, on their existing home. They're also not getting approved for new mortgages. And yeah. the reason is one, they can't afford to. Uh, and two, the amount that they can get a qualified for is going down and down and down. So you're seeing a 42% drop in new mortgage funds. And I saw someone anecdotally comment that mortgage broker income was down about 50% year to date because they get paid, obviously, based on the amount that that you get. So on the one hand, you've got this rising price market, historically fast, that is suggesting a market that is just going to continue to ramp. But then you can see people are, are not going out and borrowing as much money, not nearly as much money, which suggests buyer demand is going to start to drop off and if buyer demand drops off buyer's ability to purchase drops off the prices are going to have to roll over here what do okay. you think, what do you think? Okay. I, I threw okay. a lot at you there i threw a lot at you
1: yeah you threw a lot there so just pause for one quick sec here so basically you're saying that house prices are going through the roof but no one's taking any debt to do it so there's a shit ton of people buying with a lot more cash
0: well, there's, there's an element of that, but I think also... Or do you mean
1: that there's just a ton of volume, like a huge reduction in volume?
0: I think, I think there's definitely a reduction in purchases, um, even though prices are rising. I think it's also people have gone out and the, the people got their mortgages in maybe, you know, December and January, and then they went out and they purchased in March, April, May. But now no one knew has been going out and getting these mortgages, right? So it's a lagging effect here. At some point, it seems to suggest that these prices are and this demand is going to roll over.
1: I understood. Okay, so but I guess the reason I'm like kind of baffled right now is that's an 80% drop in new mortgages. 80%.
0: New borrowing, I should clarify. That's new borrowing, not mortgages. But yeah.
1: But do those new... Yeah, well, so new borrowing that probably includes refis. That includes
0: refis. That includes adding, you know, HELOC products. That includes getting a line of credits. A significant. Even if that's
1: half of that, even if that's half of that, we're still cutting by like, if you cut this in half to 29 billion, we're still down 60%. Yeah. Yeah. On, it's- on mortgages, which I don't understand because then how is the market running up? Yeah, Equifax, Equifax said
0: super low. 42% mortgages were down, new mortgages were down 42%. Yeah, what we're seeing is, okay, are
1: down
0: 42%. when there was that blip of, you know, stabilized, slightly low rates, and when Bank of Canada said, okay, we're going to pause rate increases, the market rebounded pretty strongly, people went out and bought, we're still seeing those deals closing now, right? Because say someone bought in April, it only closed in May, if they bought in March, it might have only closed in May. And now we're here midway through June and we're getting May's numbers. So mm-hmm. there was this steep, steep incline. Again, a, a historically steep income uh, incline for January to May. But if new people aren't entering the market in, as in, in, with as much gusto and with as much buying power, this is going to crescent here. And that crescent is probably going to be seen here in, in June and July. Again, these are national numbers. But if Should you it want to predict, what's that?
1: Shouldn't it all already have crescendo based on the numbers that you're saying? Like if there's no fucking Jesus, if there's no new mortgages going out uh, in Q1, like wouldn't that have already caused a crescendo? Well, the, you know, you're talking like about that's like a direct impact.
0: Well, you are you have a 120 day rate hold, right? So I think so would.
1: this number, this 11 billion and 58 billion aren't based on rate holds. You're not saying there's 11 billion true. dollars of money that's been yeah. rate holded.
0: But I'm, really saying, but I'm just saying but I'm just saying people people would have say gotten a rate hold in um you know November or December January and then purchased purchased in, in, in February, March, April. But then the people that went out after that, say in March, April, May, they did not take on nearly as much mortgage and there's not as many buyers entering the market that'll presumably be closing in June, July, August.
1: Totally understood. But I guess more my concept is Forget about the rates for a second. It doesn't matter what the rate was. It's just simply looking at the volume of the mortgage. Yeah. If there's if there's only 11 billion dollars of mortgages going out in Q1, that means we were like no deal. That being said, Q1 of this year was silence. The yeah. Market only started. I know. I know the, the skippable stats that you go up with were that Q1 or, or tilted from the start of this year to today is how much growth we've had. None of that growth was had in March, February. No, it's a good point. January, January February, definitely none. March, maybe, maybe, but really the market turned back on in April. So I think. That's probably why I think 2023 Q2 versus 2022 Q2 might show a more accurate picture potentially.
0: Um, That's a good point because also there was a little bit of a dip in the fixed rates in April and May. So those people mm -hmm. who took those fixed rates are now shopping. That's why the market's been hot, 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 because those people are now shopping. I'm just saying if we're trying to predict the Q3, Q4, Um, And now that we have more rate increases, fixed rates are up high again, there is this lag of whatever the rate hold is. The rate holds 120 days. So all you need to do really is look at when was the last cheapest money, which I think was, there was a little dip in the five-year fixed in May. So we've got May to June, June to July, July to August. August to September will be kind of the last period that people will have had that round of cheaper money. So yeah. It's, it's just all very conflicting information because the prices are going up like this, but less people are getting mortgages and are getting approved for less amount. You have to think there's going to be some sort of balance struck between those two. Um, it's why I feel now that this run-up that we're at right now is the latest crescendo, and we're going to have some petering after this. For a little bit, I don't think we're going to have a big pullback yeah, in it's, our it's local the, market. It's
1: a secondary bear bear run. I think, if, well, yeah, we've talked about it before the, the, the pullbacks. I think will be on the properties. Properties aren't good uh, as a whole, um, but if you have a good property, I don't think you're you're going to lose a ton of value. And I think time to sale might slow down, or well, it will slow down. You're already seeing it. Non-perfect properties are very sought after locations are taking a lot longer uh, to sell. But well, I'm, just, I'm just kind of going of my head the the last thing I just want to add is I don't know that it's going to be rate holds that define the market. I think it's honestly more sentiment.
0: Oh, 100%. I think a lot of
1: people recognize what their rate hold is or that they even know they have one. I think a lot of people are just like hearing the news or they hear a rate hike and then like, oh, I'm not, I'm out or I'm not taking more money or I'm not doing anything because it, it's it's bad. Because um, just like I think that's what was going on at the start of this year post-Christmas. Everyone was just like bad news, bad news, bad news. We just come off a huge ramp. Yep. And people like, well, it's not so bad. I mean, and then long-term rates came down a little bit
0: um well that's the thing a lot of people don't yeah yeah, people don't understand the rate market at all like when that most recent bank of canada uh rate increase came down people like oh well that that'll probably slow the market again like well no one that's going out and getting approved for a mortgage right now is taking a variable rate no one is they're all taking fixed right now so it has no effect on the immediate buying power of, of those people for the most part at least you know strictly in a vacuum to their mortgage um but most people don't understand that, but they hear the news, they hear it's bad and they assume the worst. What it really hurts is people who already have the home. And we've said before that people bearing the brunt of this are people who have purchased in the last three years, right? Like they're, they're the ones, um, bearing the brunt of what I think was bad federal policy, but, um, yeah, just very interesting. And then add to that sales were up 70% uh, or sales were up in 70% of the markets in May prices were up 5.1% from April to May. So we've got this run on, on pricing that, that we're having, um, but then you look at a market like Toronto where now new listings are outpacing sales, uh, which is a relatively um, unique or or new phenomenon in the last few years. So you have a slowly growing inventory of properties in some markets. And when you think of what an important driving market Toronto is, in terms of headlines, in terms of national average, in terms of you know driving that sentiment and narrative that you're talking about, they have this growing supply of houses, um, which is outpacing sales for the first time in a while. That indicates that there could be another correction coming for that market.
1: So, well, yeah, yeah so a couple, couple things to that, I and mean, just a couple things I want to add overall. But uh, the Toronto market—I was trying to pull up an article that I read uh, last week, but yeah, here it is. Actually, it's from Better Dwelling. Uh, we call them on a lot. But it's Canadian largest real estate market saw supply of pace population. So both Toronto and Vancouver actually saw more units being built uh, than their population grew. Okay. Um, which is kind of scary because, I mean, that's something that we've always talked about. Oh, like there's no supply, there's no supply, no supply. Um, but they built, let's see here, um, they had 84,500 people uh, move in. And they built 61,320 properties. And you're obviously like, oh, that's not like that's a smaller number. But the average property houses, I think it's 1.6 or 1.8 people. Uh, right. So when you look at it like that, they're actually outpacing population growth with adding more units. Uh, which, which is good in some sense because Toronto and, and Vancouver's in a similar boat, a slightly uh, less dramatic uh, difference in, in numbers. It's pretty close. Let's see here it was. Uh, housing stock grew twenty eight thousand homes with a uh, population climbing fifty five thousand people. That's with an average of two people per home, uh, they're, they're just beating that number. Uh, but it's good. I mean, it's something that we need, right? Eventually, that that market does need to cool a bit because the pricing's gone out of this world. So you're saying in
0: um, tr- in Toronto and Vancouver, to in Toronto and Vancouver, new units are outpacing the population growth in those markets.
1: Yes, and again, not on a direct number comparison. It's on the basis that the average property holds like one point eight to two people. Right. Um, but it is definitely something to consider because especially there's property there definitely holds at least two people when you consider there's probably units that are holding a lot more than that because people are trying to share their costs or when you're buying a condo, there's not many single income earners in, in those cities that are purchasing condos on their own. Um, but anyways, I just say that because you mentioned that you, you see uh, potential correction for those, those markets. Um, Do you ever, I, I agree.
0: Um, do you ever go down the rabbit hole of these arguments that Canada doesn't actually have a housing supply problem? I know you and I have talked about this before and you talk about like, Oh, there's all these vacant units, blah, 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 blah.
1: I'm in for a good conspiracy and I've done on some different ones. Yeah. Let me hear what you guys say. What, what you are thinking?
0: Well, I just, it this just reminded me of an argument you and I had one time and you're like, there's all these vacant empty units in BC. Like there's actually enough houses to, to house everyone. It's all just manufactured. Um, And, you know, we we posted that clip of those two homes basically across Niagara Falls from one another, Niagara Falls, Canada, like 650,000 Niagara Falls in the States, um, 150 or whatever it was. And it got a lot of flack or traction, you know, people were, were riled up about it for sure. Um, and it's so weird because our cost of construction supports the prices in a lot of cases, and maybe that's problematic in itself of how expensive it is to to build the homes. Um, but there does always seem to be this disconnect in mainly in secondary markets where it's hard to understand the pricing sometimes relative to our income relative to the number of people, um, in some of these areas where man, like the houses do seem expensive I don't know. Okay. I don't know let where me, I'm going with this comment. question.
1: I, I wasn't, I will say, I know what you're talking about now. And I remember back, it wasn't that I felt that there was so many empty properties that just everybody would get housing overnight. But I did consider the fact that there is a bigger percentage of empty homes than I think we, we recognize. Um, there is a ton of secondary properties. Uh, and then there's also a ton of Airbnbs. And my, my logic kind of was with a with slower market, if that volume starts coming onto market at any sort of pace like you, if you look at it on a, on a monthly scale on a monthly scale, let's say our market's short 150 houses. If you then take all of those and make them non-viable for whoever owns them and they want to sell them now. And for that month, an extra 150 listing co- comes on. Now we've matched what the market needed. Mm-hmm. The next month if that happens again. It only takes 60 to 90 days of a certain type of market for everyone's mindset to change. Right. In yeah. 90 days, if you had three months, where the, the, the listing volume actually matched the buying volume, the this crazy fire is going to get put out, right? It's going to slow down. And then you have the mindset change that follows that, where people are like, oh, crap. It's similar to what's happening right now. We had the same deal where there's a, a bit of a scrunch on inventory, and now we've had two, three months of just like this massive run-up. But mm-hmm. a lot of things are pointing to it going down. And, and everyone yeah. knows that, but they're still going out there and bidding and being aggressive. Um, and again, it, it's more mindset than I think actual actually following numbers and and, and things like that so that was always my yeah. my concept with that the other thing I want to add to what you just said which is construction prices seem to match um match kind of what we're selling things for what things are being rented for etc which I do agree with in, in some capacity but there's also the aspect that like if for example and this is already what I see happening but Whatever any benefit they put out, all of that happens is everything else gets more expensive. And what I mean by that is, let's say Canadian government comes out with a $25,000 incentive to build units. Yeah. Well, guess what? I probably have that $25,000. A good portion of it is just going to go into land value. So if land was trading for $100,000 a unit, and now they put out this $25,000 yeah. credit, yeah. the land value is going to go up to one twenty-five.
0: dollars Yeah. Well, this is the problem with the whole idea of like, oh, let's just let government solve it. They're going to take our tax dollars and then they're going to spit it back out to us and try to make it seem like it was efficient, but it's the exact opposite, right? Like that money comes from somewhere. That money comes from taxpayers and then it gets bureaucratized. gets turned into 20 cents on the dollar and then it gets given back to someone. And this is the whole thing with, like, I don't know if we want to get into this carbon taxing thing. A lot of people have been asking us about that, but it's the same sort of model. It's like, oh no, no, it'll be fine. Like you're just going to pay way more at the pump and way more for your home heating and all of the expenses of carbon tax are going to be passed on to you with the things you buy at the store, blah, blah, But then don't worry, we're going to send you a check in the mail for 170 bucks and it'll all be fine. it's like, wait, what, what are we doing? It makes Over no sense to, to me. Bananas. Yeah. It's, this is, all right, we have this over-reliance on government and it is so frustrating. And then Canadians wonder why there's so many problems and they complain about stuff, and then they just continue to repeat the cycle. I think I've said it before. If you vote, are voting for the status quo in any of your upcoming situations, like, I think there's something seriously wrong with you. Um, I, but we're all in it. And, and you know what? The p- person's going to get that check in the mail and be like, yeah, thank you, government, for this check. It's like you bozo. Like that is your own money, and it's only a <laughs> fraction of your own money that they are giving back to you, and now you are happy about it. I don't understand what we are doing. I think
1: frustration with it. Um, but again, like I said, I want to, like, focusing on the, on the housing thing, I think I, I'm going to, after having said what I just said, which is, like, anything the government gives out as an incentive is going to get gobbled up by someone along the chain, whether it's the builder. Yeah. If it's a building incentive, the builder will soak it up. If it's something that directly benefits the land values or the financing, the person who is the land developer or owns the land will end up winning off of that. Um but like I'm not going to give a problem without what I think there could be a potential solution to, which is, I think there's two options, which is government giving out land, taking excess surplus land, and giving it to someone to build, um, and then putting mandates against that, like being like you need to match these units to this this costing, or and you need to build within a certain time frame and pushing a bunch of density in that direction, mm-hmm. not just giving a ton of surplus land to two developers that they can slowly build out over 20 years. It's like these need yeah. to be built within the next 12 months this
0: needs to break cram and get started um and what was I gonna say what was the other thing um what I'm about well wait, like so but here's the thing you know you and i are both very free market capitalism yeah. to a large large degree and then you say stuff like all right the government's gonna handle real estate development and blah blah and this is the problem we try to have it both ways like we we are you know Capitalist in some respects, socialist in other respects, am I not committing to one or the other? This is where we run into problems. Because if we had a yeah. truly free market that wasn't buoyed up and reliant on, uh, you know, government subsidies and HST rebates and all of these things, maybe we probably, oh, I, I think we wouldn't have these problems to begin with. Because at the end of the day, if the government starts saying, oh, we have these programs here and there, people are just going to find a way to grease those programs to over profit on them effectively, and yeah. the challenge with that is then you create these false markets, and you know you can look at that as the the you know capitalist system abusing the government regulations, or you can just look at it as business being business, whereas if you just made the builders go out there and have to figure it out on their own, I think ultimately the market would sort it out and and I just think a lot of these half measures that we take the profiteering nature of business is that they're like, okay, cool. So I can get that money from the government and still charge this m- amount over here. Absolutely. I'm going to do that. And whether I, that's, I think, I
1: think we're in that market though, where they got, where, where builders are out there kind of figuring it out on their own. And it's gotten to a costing of like, the only way to make money is to do high end luxury stuff. And so that's mm-hmm. the thing that ever gets built. Right. And so, which is fine, but then it's not, allowing there to be like, it's not being built at a pace that can keep the affordable housing affordable. Yeah. And so that something kind of has to get, like there needs to be some sort of incentive to do it, but it has to be done in a way where it doesn't just get gobbled up by someone else making money. And it has to be yeah. like large enough that it can actually have that much impact. And I think that's another aspect of it is they do little dribs and it's like, that's not big enough. Yeah. yeah. You need to rezone a thousand acres and be like, there's 50 or a hundred lots in here and you need to completely flood the market.
0: Like I am um, staring directly across here to downtown Dartmouth, right? Like we are, we're, we're in downtown Halifax. This is downtown Dartmouth, and I'm looking. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking across here and see all that green space there, right? Yeah. Right by, right by the the ferry terminal. Like we're talking. I don't know if I were to estimate that, I would say between. Cove, right? And this is very specific to our area, so people may, may be bored about this, And but I, I would love to, to show people a picture of this. Between, like, the Cove, the industrial actual shipping Coast Guard part of downtown Dartmouth, and the Woodside Ferry Terminal, I see literally, I don't know, a thousand acres of green space. Some of it around the NSCC, why, you know, they would put a university right on the waterfront, I, I don't quite know. And then a bunch around, I think that's, you know, the Dartmouth General and stuff. We're talking thousands of acres of just green space in, a, in a city that has a housing problem. And so why isn't that all just getting massively developed with units? I don't know.
1: agree. On the flip side, I'd also agree, like, if a city gets big enough, it's great when they have these green spaces within the city space. But it's easy for them to get chewed up. So that, I'm like, I'm back and forth. I'm like, do we need all the housing to be right in the middle of downtown? Like, no, not at all but is we have we have a ferry transit system. Those are parks further out. Well, no, so that, that's my other problem is they don't there's nothing being done with them. That's the only reason yeah. I'm like I agree with what you're saying, but then you go to another big city that has these green spaces, they're heavily utilized as parks and spaces that you can do things. For us, it's like literally just a ton of bushes. There is one little okay path that rips along there, but our, our waterfronts need to be maximized. Um but yeah, I was thinking like surplus lands in places that aren't necessarily super high level, like in, in like That's a very nice area that I think it's kind of cool that they're keeping green space. I do think it's ridiculous that the entire Dartmouth waterfront has effectively no property, like no residential property. The school on the water can be kind of nice. At the end of the day, um, school is always pretty bland and locations usually suck and you're in like a middle of a suburb or surrounded by a city. So it's kind of cool that they're on that giant green space. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I just like,
0: do we need to put the community college on like, 100 acres of waterfront green park land <laughs> like it just it yeah, just it stands it's, out and again that, that's not park space that any that anyone has public access to it's just like wasted green space in the downtown of a city that apparently is really struggling with with housing but yeah
1: i i mean it is a, it is a public space in a sense of the park's a public space and no man like i i, I, I live over
0: there i've so. never been to any of these green spaces
1: no no, no behind the behind the community college Buying the community college, I think I think the community college kind of makes sense because look, if you develop so if you develop that whole waterfront, it's gonna be so damn expensive that the average person's not gonna actually be able to access it. Yeah, I'm
0: right, anyway. Like Halifax yeah, waterfront.
1: Yeah. The Halifax waterfront is mm-hmm. so freaking expensive and any waterfront in any city is so expensive that you're basically then pushing everybody out. So I think keeping like something like an NSCC or something down there, if it's done well, which that building was, it's a beautiful building, uh, and they did a nice big park on the backside, I think that's a good opportunity. The other space I agree with you to an extent, but I'm also like, let's keep it but make it an awesome park. And then there's a ferry terminal right there, and there's a ton of land on the other side of the water. There's tons of space there to build uh massive, massive buildings, and there's tons of underutilized space, even like the neighborhood of Woodside is so low on density. Um
0: -hmm. and further in,
1: as you go further into town too, like I think they need to to maximize, but we should be having as a waterfront city, we should be having like a, a park line that goes all the way along. Like you should yeah, no, go down to Halifax all the way around the Bedford Basin and, and down back into the front of Dartmouth without ever leaving like a beautiful bicycle path. Yeah, and
0: we're, and we're kind of getting nuanced into our, our local market here. I guess the point I'm making is um, I think there's just more flat out that we can do for development, but the article you're referencing in Better Dwelling, which people should check out because I brought it up here in my phone. Um, it's a really, really interesting article. Did you read it to the end? Which one? The Better Dwelling article that talks about how in uh, how new construction in Toronto and Vancouver is outpacing population growth, growth. So in fact, we may not actually have a shortage of housing that we think we do that, that article is phenomenal. People should check it out. Did you read to the end of it?
1: I didn't read the whole thing. No.
0: So they basically go on to, I don't know if the ledge is the word that the federal government is aware of this, that we don't have a housing shortage. If anything, we have a very risky housing bubble. Um, because this narrative of a housing shortage and this narrative of rising prices is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we've created a bubble and the only way to make sure that it doesn't crash to epic proportions is to bring in a bunch of people to support these mm-hmm. prices. So they're suggesting in this article, I was actually very surprised to read the end of this and see how, um, how much of a conspiracy theorist they may maybe getting into there. Um, they're saying that the whole reason Canada is bringing in all these people is because they know we have a housing bubble, and they need these people to yeah. catch it when it bursts.
1: Well, I think it's the housing it bubble. Up. It's also to help try and protect our currency, right? It's the same. It's the same concept. Both those things. It's really to protect what we have. If We have people buying <sighs> <and> stuff. <sighs> this um, is crazy times. Man. Then we can then we can survive. It is a very sketchy time. It's the same thing. Like that's why they're saying like lower rates actually led to uh, housing affordability issues, and. The head of CMHC, Ronnie Bowers, is also saying, he's like, well, like we talked about it on here before. I thought maybe they're going to extend the amortization of mortgages or reduce the mm-hmm. like threshold to qualify. And he said, ultimately, all that's going to do is it's going to continue to drive uh, unaffordability. Yeah. More people can qualify. Prices are going to go higher. I know if they extend them to 75 years or 100 years, immediately, the house prices oh my God. Yeah. go up to match that.
0: Yeah. Um, Jesus. Yeah, that the, well, that's the other thing they mentioned in the articles. They say then the rising price hasn't been a shortage of supply. It hasn't been an excess of demand. It has been falsely created by cheap money. Anyway, um, really so interesting take. All that and being said,
1: what do you think would actually make a difference? To me, so like I said, the, the aspect is on, on apartment rentals. I think giving surplus lands is important. The other flip side to immigration, I respect that they've been immigrating professionals um, and high net worth individuals but they might need to also bring in a labor force mm-hmm. because what's happening is Canada's turning into just all high net worth individuals and it's making it very unaffordable for basically anyone working like a standardized shop.
0: I uh, If
1: you don't own a business or have a ton of investments when you come here, it's almost impossible to get like, get ahead.
0: Yeah. This is going to get, this is going to get heavy. I believe that in order to really fix stuff, you have to actually, blow it up and start again. And I, I don't think we would ever do that don't so blow the whole country up. Um just kind of hit uh it's some sort of significant reset. And I hate using that term because it's been kind of co-opted or whatever. Um where to begin? Uh I think a couple things. I think one we need a return of individuals to the job market that are out of the job market. Um for a variety of reasons. Ooh, this is, I gotta tread really carefully here. I think a lot of people have been permitted or even incentivized to leave the labor force because they get paid to not work. Um, and some for very, very, very valid reasons. I believe in, you know, social safety net and, and all these supports. Other people, I think, are opportunistic and make a calculated microeconomic decision. I could not work and make this, or I could work and make that. I'm going to not work and make this. So I believe just in the same way that we may not have a housing shortage, I think we don't actually have a labor shortage in a lot of cases. We just have people who have taken themselves out of the labor market. Because once someone is put on a program, they are no longer part of the active labor force. And so our unemployment numbers drop that is not an unemployed person. That is an unemployable person. And I think we need to look very hard at the definition we're using in Canada for a person that couldn't be gainfully employed and why they aren't motivated to stay in in the job market. That's one issue I think we have. I think another issue we have here is that, um, man, I'm going to sound like a traditional old person. The numbers you reference, the numbers you reference about the number of people per household (laughs) and how um, housing starts are outpacing household formations and all of these things, it's becoming a bit of a skewed measure because we are making it so expensive for people to start families that we have less people forming families, coupling up, starting their lives. And when you change that dynamic I think you shift markets. So say two people form a relationship and they purchase a home together. They have more buying power, but they also only take up one home. When you have people that just aren't coupling up at nearly the pace or volume that they once did, that's two people out there who need two homes. And I know that sounds like a dumb simplification, but... There's something going on there where people are single longer you and think later. Less people in are getting together? I do. I do. I also think when they are together, they don't stay together. Um, and it is financially challenging for them to have children. And so our population is not growing naturally. And I think there's something there that we need to look at. But I think that's also happening all throughout the Western world. And I don't really know what the solution is. Um, I just...
1: I think that's happening all over the world. I don't know if that that's just necessarily a Western world thing, but it's also, I think, the culture now to, like, even if you're, like, even if you're a couple and you stay together, that you're constantly upgrading and you're holding on to property. Like, everyone's yeah. like, oh, like, they expect by the time they're 30 to be two or three houses deep in their dream home and own two rentals. Like, everyone's like, yeah, I don't yeah. sell my, my last house. I just rent it and then I buy another.
0: Yeah. Um, but, but I, I, I do I think, think we... Do you think we, it's actually a
1: higher ratio, though, if people not stay
0: together? Uh, and I mean, singles? statistically, yeah.
1: <laughs> I guess statistically, people aren't just staying together as much. That I agree. Yeah. But you think there's actually more singles. Oh yeah. Like everybody I know is in a relationship. Yeah, yeah. Or no, I think married. I
0: think people are definitely single longer. Um, I I don't know. On a long enough timeline, I don't know how to measure that. Like, um, what what it would look like, but I do are, see that. And then you have the like ratios
1: of people just living at home. Then, like, there's also on the flip side, yeah. on, the, on the opposite of that, you have like yeah. a way higher number of people that still live at home.
0: I think also just like the risk. Of one person taking on so much debt. Whereas when you have a partner, um, you know, you, you mitigate that risk to some degree, especially if you're responsible with it. Um, and, and I'm not saying that in a knock, I'm not saying someone's just, oh, I'm just gonna get in a relationship, then oh, there that's a the solution to all my problems. I'm just saying, like we have created this challenging um situation for young people who, you know, it takes longer for them to graduate. They're hemorrhaging debt by the time they do. They're really struggling to start their careers. How do you do that while also maybe think about family formation and partnerships and building a household and doing all these things? And then you're hearing like, oh my gosh, and you've got to buy real estate. Like, okay, I'll roll the dice and I'll spend all my net worth, every dime I've got to buy real estate and probably still need chip in from mom and dad. And I just think there would be something to be said for if we could find a way that, um, I don't know, people maybe. I don't know where I'm going with this. I, I, I've i lost the plot here a bit, but I'm trying well, to get us yeah, no, the so I'm
1: going to add to what you're saying in, in some capacity. So um, I went to a presentation by the chief economist uh, of CIBC, Ben Tal. He was, in, he was in Halifax there for a night. Um, ben Tal, actually, sorry. And he had a basically a big presentation obviously regarding the economy of Canada, but a pre- predominant focus on immigration and housing because that's a big part of our economy here um and obviously as a bank that's where a lot of their debt is tied up um and he kind of went through all the other stats and numbers showed atlantic canada was doing very well which is great um but one thing that he mentioned and kind of how he summarized was the canadian and north american mindset need to shift because when you look in european countries you can be 35 married with a kid and you rent an apartment Mm -hmm. and that is very normal
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In Canada, like you're just mm-hmm. you were just alluding to, if you don't own a house by the time you're 30, it's like what are you doing?
0: Yeah, like, yeah, no, that's a what? great point. Yeah, and,
1: and and our mindset here, it's like you got to own a house, the white picket fence, all this crap. Yeah, that's true. And so everyone's like pushing and pushing and pushing to, to own housing, and it doesn't necessarily make sense. And we've just kind of made the idea that it's just this great investment because it's gone up a lot with all the new debt policies effectively in place, but. That culture could easily change. When you look at a lot of European cities, in the, for the big portion of the city, it's mid-rise housing, and it keeps the density up, and that's actually good to run a city. Whereas mm-hmm. North American cities have a very dense core, mm-hmm. and they have this suburban sprawl, which is terrible for the economy of a city, um, mm-hmm. and it ultimately leads to this pricing where it just gets insane as you come into the core because you're spread so far out. Right. So, anyways, as long, his basically the summarize, his thing was, we need to start shifting the culture where people are comfortable to rent for a longer period of time because the other aspect is like, I, we just look at a condo, um, a $450,000 condo now costs about three grand a month. between I mean, your mortgage payment, your taxes, yeah. uh, your condo fees, all that. That same condo probably rents for two grand. Yeah. So like you're spending an extra thousand dollars a month to, to take that on. And as time goes on, that, that, that gap's going to continue to grow.
0: Yeah, no, that, and that, if you look that that's Toronto, a great point. Yeah. It's,
1: it's, so so it's the same concept. It's like you should be comfortable renting because why the heck are you completely financially burning yourself to buy something? And again, there's other alternative investments that you can make that honestly will probably pay and do well for you over the over the course of your life.
0: Yeah, I guess like the the counterpoint to that would be okay, yes, that that may be the savvy and smart financial thing to do, but there is also something to be said for quality of life and saying, well, maybe I would like to raise my child with a backyard. And you can make fun of the picket fence all you want, but it's a pretty nice picket fence, and it's a nice life. Um, so, I mean, you, you know. can't afford
1: it though. <clears throat> yeah. So if you have uh, absolutely no money, yeah. you can you can raise them in your backyard and be completely dead broke your entire life, like basically your house poor as shit. But the, the, so I don't the, know. This it, is like it is a pretty nice life. That's like, I'll, you want to fly private jets and have a yacht. So I mean. It so, might as well, like at what point do you stop right? It, it, totally, it but I don't up. think you can
0: liken owning a house to like, well, that should be as unattainable as flying a private jet and, and having a yacht. Like, that that sounds like a really good treatment for the symptoms, but not a cure for the illness, right? Oh, well, the, no, but the, it's, it's the, a the, grotesque
1: example to, yeah. to make a point, but real, like, I think this is the same concept. It's like if people just wanted a house, well, then you can get comfortable and you can drive 30 minutes to buy a house. Well, the, yeah, that, that's
0: to the to other thing, house. That that's the other thing, I think. Right? You Pe- can't expect to have yeah. a
1: house inside the neighborhood that's better than the one that your parents grew up in that they yeah. spent their whole life to establish and get. And then yeah. you're like, I'm only going to buy on the peninsula, let's say, for it to be to be specific to Halifax. And it's like people spend their whole life and never get the opportunity to, to buy on yeah. there. And there's this mindset now that you should be able to just roll on and get it. And then when you can't, you're like, this is insanity. This also, is the worst thing ever.
0: Yeah. Also, I mean, my parents, when they bought in 1984, this, the area that they bought in, People were like, you want to live way out there? And now it's an area that people can't move into. They're like, oh, my gosh, I'd, I'd love to be in that area, but it's just not really feasible. And, and it's considered like very much in town. So we need a little bit of to change that mindset of maybe I'm going to a different community. Maybe I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I think some of that is also savviness because people are so concerned with their, their job status and their income on paper. They don't look at the cost of living of, of living in that city right? Yeah. You could probably make a case where you could be a barista in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, and have a higher, like disposable income than being a young CPA in Halifax.
1: Guaranteed. Guaranteed. I
0: guarantee that's,
1: you probably make more as a barista in Halifax than you where as a CPA in Halifax and you probably still
0: be in a better position. I, I, But I, I just mean when you count for like, all right, what's the difference in you know my rent that I'm paying? What's the difference in yeah. my even cost of commuting when I'm like living in a town that I can walk around versus I have to drive and all of these things, you know. But I don't know if that there's either not the savviness to to make those calculations, or to your point. It is this pressure of like, no, no, I want this job in this city and I want to do that. And we've sort of I stigmatized exactly. things in the same way we stigmatized working in the trades for all the those years, and now tradespeople are crushing it, and we really need more tradespeople. And we're trying to tell people you should go into trades and be like, Well, no, I, I should get an engineering degree or or a finance degree, blah, blah. Like, I don't know, man. I there's a great meme that goes around there uh where like this uh there are these two people. It's like Carl, you know, did this degree and has this amount of debt and thinks they're smarter than people in the trades. It's like, and then Kevin over here, um, you know, got paid for his apprenticeship, makes ninety thousand dollars a year to be an electrician, and just disconnected Carl's power, right? Like, yeah, that's a <laughs> it's a pretty great one. Um,
1: yeah, one hundred percent. And I think I do think it's I think it's a lot of pressures, and this is where I always based on social media and stuff, where I think today's generation is under so much pressure from their families and parents their friends, and then the actual social media that you, that you see around them. And everything is just created out to be this big, giant fantasy that it's impossible to try and keep up. But again, I think back to my parents, they bought outside of the main cities to start. Their first home, they bought outside of the main cities because they're like, we want a house, but we can't afford to be buying in the in somewhere in a city in Ontario. So yeah. you, you start there and you work your way in. And there, there's yeah. tons of options to do that.
0: And again, not not to come back on... Uh, and people are going to think it's so weird that I I put the role of like relationship and family formation as part of this discussion. But if you look at these people who, you know, who are immigrating here, part of the reason they have the strength and confidence and the willingness to do this is because they come with their family. Right. And it's easy for us to say, oh, just move to these secondary markets, man, as as a single person, that'd be very difficult but if you were in like a good healthy relationship like that's Man. your partner like you're building a future together it would be easy to do some of these things take some of these risks with a partner i disagree
1: a, 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 heavily a, a, oh that's okay, okay. Okay. the immigrants have to come here without any family no oh that's true, way. that's true
0: that's true that's true that's true there's lots yeah, of people yeah,
1: i know so many that are coming here by themselves good point. And i'm like that's even yeah. scarier i, I think just, they come from a different culture i think north yeah. american culture is comfort and success and all this crap but they come from a place where it's like. you don't hustle and you don't grind and you don't get comfortable with discomfort Mm. you're going to get eaten up and swallowed Mm. and you're going to have no opportunity because in those countries you're forced to have to push through um whereas here everyone especially like you just get used to it the second you go to school and you meet all everyone else like he's got this they got this they got that then you get the internet and you're like oh crap like then everybody has everything amazing and so there's just this constant perception you're only Mm -hmm. being fed the best things right social media presses you with only the greatest things people don't share their hardships or their issues they only share their wins so when you follow when you go on social yeah. media there's a thousand no, people true. you follow sharing their wins every day then you're seeing that but i, I agree that like, there's some immigrants that come with their family but i bet you on average they're not coming with their whole family there's always like a couple sisters left behind there's always a couple parents left behind mm-hmm. and there are so many i would say from india especially so many single guys yeah that come from india that are like i'm i always ask them because i'm like you i'm like where are you from because i I'm kind of a loaded question but i i want to know their story because i'm so impressed by the fact that they can leave everything they know in, in pursuit of a better life and a lot of times they're sending money home yeah. to support their families yeah um and they're like yeah man i'm here by myself like i, I don't know anybody and like
0: yeah, i well. live yeah.
1: in like I, I rent a room in a shitty place outside of town and i'm saving every dollar and i sold like the guys of like five of them buying a house together mm-hmm. to get on the ladder and then they're able to pull out a bit of equity and then they each go do their own thing mm. north American culture is just not that like if mm-hmm. i have someone here that grew up here and all that they're They're not asking or making those relationships. Like you said, asking mommy and daddy, which is fine if it works, but if it doesn't work.
0: Yeah. It's not there. I think the last thing, and we got to wrap this up here, um, but it ties into all of this. We talked about about narrative. I think it's so funny that a big part of the Bank of Canada's tactics are just threatening rate increases. There's the actual, I would say like they have one tool and that's manipulating the overnight rate, but they actually have two tools. The other one is manipulating perception of what they might do next. Right. So it's not only that they're like, look, all they said is, I think we're going to take a pause. And then just them saying that made the market run a little bit. And now they did one rate yeah. increase and they say, we might do another. So they get basically two impacts for the price of one. Um, yeah. They're, if the media is effectively controlled anyway, which let's be honest, it kind of is. I just don't know why they just don't like plant all these stories that, oh, house prices are going down. House prices are going down. House prices are going down. Everyone should really s- sell for less. Everyone should just save all their money. Even like, if well, we, we already like, are. like
1: all the news. Every news article out there is negative for the most part. There's very few positive news articles. Uh, they're positive. The, the, the negativity though. Click it?
0: The negativity is houses are so expensive. If they just send out something like, "Man, houses are dirt cheap now. Everything's going down." Did you hear? People would be like, "Oh, that must be true. That must be true." Well,
1: you. Yeah. I yeah, think they I think like they need to cheap, people are gonna want to buy. I I, yeah.
0: I I I think they need to I think they need to sow some fear in people because people still aren't getting it. People are still overspending. Um I, I, I think they need to sow more fear about a pending um like recessionary no, I correction.
1: More, I think we need to do old school politics, which is like Trudeau gets up and he's like, I need this is an emergency announcement you guys all need to stop spending. You got to chill because I think they tried to get there and like, oh, this worked. And then they, like you said, they said, all right, we're going to freeze it for a minute. We think the population understands that we were going through some craziness. Let's just all mm-hmm. relax on chasing our dream for a second here and like let the economy stabilize. And then everyone's like, no, screw that. I see an opportunity to buy. I'm going. Yeah. Um,
0: oh, it's the same way. Like I think
1: they need to come out, but they yeah. never
0: formally say it.
1: That's yeah. what I like, said. I agree. With yeah. They're just threatening the rate hikes to try and scare everyone to chill out. And so like, oh, we could have done 15 basis points, but that wouldn't have been enough. They would have realized that we weren't really doing anything. Yeah, so we're, we're getting to the minimum, which is a quarter, to try and instill the idea of fear into people. Yeah, um, Because they just won't chill out. People are not getting off their... Well, it's because of the other things. Loads. Like, Does
0: the government really want you to not spend? Do they really want that? Because that is how they get all of their money, is if you spend. So the government's like, oh, we kind of want you to not spend, but like, do we want you to not spend? Like, that's like, do do, do do the municipalities really want cheaper housing when their entire revenue is housing? It's their entire source of income. And they want to continue to buy these things that no one asked them for. Right. So Mm. I don't know if that they really want it to stop. They say they do, but they're addicted to it, man. The government is addicted to expensive housing, which again comes back to that theory that the real reason we're bringing all these people in is because. The government now knows that we have an inflated real estate market and it could burst. So we better bring in a bunch of people to prevent it from bursting. I don't necessarily believe that's the case, but it's an interesting argument when you start to piece together all these things that the government needs and wants and exists off of expensive real estate prices at every level, municipal, provincial and federal.
1: Agreed. Last thing I want to add to that, and it's from, again, from Van Tal, someone much smarter than us that's done a lot of... lot of research and spent his whole life doing this. Um, He suggested that outside of the solution being like, we need to change our mindset, because that's nothing that's going to happen overnight. It's going to take 30, 50, it'll take a whole generation. Um, He also suggested that he understands that municipalities rely so heavily on the incomes from property taxes and permitting and all that. He's like, the federal government should start to kick in um, to help reduce uh, permitting fees and all those expenses, because Again, same thing, I went to a presentation with Phil Frazier um, from Killam, and he suggested that like 30% of his direct costs, we mentioned on here, 30% of his direct costs was like permitting and yeah. all the expenses associated with the municipality and taxes. And so there was suggestion that removing HST, um, federal government subsidizing permitting costs, so the municipality still makes the money, um, it's going towards something that is about value, but then it comes directly off the price of the of the housing, uh, would be great, great things. And again... Yeah he deals with BOC and the government of Canada. So he was alluding to it and there was expected to be some big changes in the latter half of this year. So maybe we might see something like that or a new program get released that allows for that to happen.
0: Yeah. Right on. Well, I think we covered a lot here today uh, more than maybe expected. And and we took some tangents there Uh, as always. um, If you got anything from this, we really appreciate you like following and sharing the content. We saw a couple of people share our last episode on the psychology of real estate. Um, I appreciate you. Uh, we appreciate you uh, sharing that to your story and stuff like that. So thanks for listening. Thanks so much for watching the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, press like, don't forget to subscribe, but also check us out on Instagram and TikTok. You can find all the links below. Thanks again for checking us out. Had
1: rich habits, uh. when I was broke I had rich habits. Uh.